Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. What is a neo-boomer? Oh, a neo-boomer. That's how I described myself on, on the last episode, I think. Yes, I know. And I was curious how you define that. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into the latest episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, neo-boomer, director of news, Frank Chaparro, and I am joined by one of the illuminaries of the Chicago trading world, Chris Haymeyer of Haymeyer Trading and Investments. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, let's let's take care of some housekeeping. Chris is apparently, and I'm very humbled by this fact, a fan of the show. And I, I think it was the last episode because I was having technical difficulties. I described myself, and I've I've constantly have said this that I'm I'm basically a twenty something with a interior of a of a six year old with the exoskeleton of a twenty something year old. And so in that same vein, I describe myself on the last show as a neo-boomer. So I'm not a boomer in the true sense. I just have many of the traits of a boomer, which is I see. the inability to like operate technology, which our CTO complains about ad nauseum. He has to literally walk me through how to like get into different accounts and stuff. And Andreas, um, who handles getting the, the show produced and such, probably has similar uh, complaints all throughout this COVID period. I mean, whether it's my microphone's not linked up or my headphones aren't working. So, so that's part of it, but there are many other parts, you know, I just, the way I talk to an extent, my sort of outward demeanor is just very, is very boomer in nature. That's basically the gist of it. But uh, anyway, as, aside from my sort of idiosyncrasies for folks who may not be familiar with Haymeyer, um, they're a pretty well-known shop out in Chicago and they recently made some interesting news. They were in the press for a pivot that they made completely into crypto. They've been doing crypto for, I mean, at least four years, right, Chris, if not more. I remember when you guys first launched that asset management product, must have been three years ago. But now you're fully on board in crypto, market making in the space. Walk us through how you guys made that transition. Before we turned on the mics, we kind of were getting to some of it, but tell us the story. It was about three years ago. And the Traditional, we've been in the traditional futures and options and stock trading business for about 10 years as, a, as, as what I think could be described as a platform, which was that we were providing the infrastructure memberships and connectivity to the exchanges. And then traders, participants could be part of us. They would have in a typical way in Chicago, oftentimes an LLC and different share classes, and they could have assets according to rules for the exchanges that have to be carefully watched, but they can have capital up and um, be able to participate in the markets using our memberships and connectivity. And so people would connect us. And that market was slowly shrinking, particularly in uh, certain markets where we used to see five years ago people able to participate in the option markets to some level on a professional level, uh, making markets and scalping. And the big guys are so good at that and have such advantages, speed, 
technology, capital, and my hat's off to them. There's no, I don't have any criticism of it. It's just typical of a market that, that matures. You have a, a group at the top, a shrinking group of big players at the top. I like to say it's a little bit like the, a little bit before the COVID thing really hit. But um, at O'Hare Airport, you know, you have three to five huge airlines and all the smaller middle-sized players, it's just really hard for them to exist. They don't have all of the advantages of the most gates and the slots. And um, it's just really hard to exist in this mature industry because it, it shrinks. It, the economies of scale, the technologies drive that. And it becomes harder and harder for the middle-sized player to exist. It's, it's a little bit like getting caught in the middle of a doubles tennis game. You, you either got to be at the net or you got to be back. And you get in what's called no man's land in tennis. And the traditional futures and options to some degree, and this is, this is a broad brush, but to some degree that's happened in the futures markets. In the old days, back on the floors, there was a huge middle class. Um, there were big guys and small guys, but there was a huge area where you could, where anybody could come and with hard work and being disciplined, you could participate to a meaningful degree. And the technologies just allow the bigger players to be better and better and better and bigger and bigger. And it uh, sort of vacates the middle. And that middle, that middle that vacated was effectively the client base of, of your sort of brokerage services unit. Certainly to some degree. I, I mean, you know, again, you can carry this out today that the brokerage firms that are that are allowing for, uh, you know, Robinhood and Betterment, these companies that are bringing access to the equity markets, mostly to the smaller participants are bringing lots of access to the smaller players. But in futures, listed futures and options, generally, and they're coming out with some products now in micros and such that are helping the smaller players to play, retail smaller players. But the, the big fish kind of get eaten up by the big guys. And so it just makes it harder to exist in the middle. And for us, it was harder. We could join up with somebody, but we found homes for our, our, our people where we used to have 30 profit centers and the number of people that could participate. That had shrunk down to about 12. And the guys who were still around were very good at it. Um, and they found homes and other shops that are still in it. And, and those guys are still very good. Again, that's not a criticism of anybody. It's a phenomenon that just is a, an observation. But the, the crypto markets, crypto asset markets, digital asset markets, the, again, the nomenclature of all of that can get a little confused. But the crypto asset markets, we are finding are very dynamic. And there's lots of opportunity in lots of places because it's changing so rapidly, there's lots of places where there seem to be opportunities. Now, we're just a little startup company compared to some of the bigger guys that have been in this a lot longer than we have. We made that announcement because we just wanted to say to the all of the people that we know so well in the futures, listed futures and options markets, that we were going to commit to the crypto. And we wanted to say to the people in the crypto industry that we're committed and we're in it. The pivot was pretty serendipitous in as much as it happened alongside this growth in the futures market, listed options and futures, and then even bespoke and structured products across the market, right? And so maybe that presents a unique opportunity for Haymeyer given that background in futures. But what do you make of the burgeoning derivatives market in crypto, given your firm's experience in the traditional futures market? Well, there's um, a number of places, let's see, where it's developing in ways that are hard to predict. Of course, there's the whole DeFi, the decentralized finance space, which is, a, I guess, a whole different animal. But just in the, in the markets where uh, there's intense competition between the exchanges, there's, of course, rumors abounding about Coinbase going public and how that's going to, if that happens, but it, it certainly looks like they seem to be gearing up to do something like that. That's going to bring a lot of uh, transparency to the industry. And Coinbase has been very good in the um, development of the products that they have. But the intention, the the, uh, the competition is fierce in that uh, exchange marketplace for these very innovative products. 
some of which are, of course, not available in the United States because they, uh, some of these exchanges have chosen not to list their products to U.S. investors for the regulatory reasons. They have not wanted to be designated contract markets under the CFTC. But these products are very innovative. They have these funding rates that allows for traders and investors to capture funding that moves every six hours and moves around with the supply and demand of the, uh, the marketplace. And now there's things like repos that I think CoinFlex is coming out with, and which makes it kind of an interest rate product. And there's the option market, I would say, looks like it's just really taking off. And the, the participants in that are fiercely trying to grab market share. And it looks like the volume of that is is growing quickly. And so there are these perpetual swaps and there's futures and there's products that seem to be coming to market that um, are going to do things that we've never even imagined. The whole DeFi space, I think there's business models that are going to be created that we're not even sure of yet. And there's smart contracts uh, that are going to have the ability to settle between participants with, and so the, it's really an exciting time and almost breathtaking in the innovation that's happening. Every time I turn around, there seems to be something that I've never heard of in my life. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never heard of that in my life. And, and so the innovation that's happening on a global basis is hard to, to keep up with. And so I just think there's a lot of opportunities and places where there are going to be things that are created that haven't even been thought of yet. Yeah, it's something that we've thought a lot about here at The Block, the differences between the market structure in crypto and and equities and how some of these exchanges operate differently, right? Like the BitMEX insurance fund is a great example of something that looks totally different from the way sort of CME operates, for instance. When you think about Haymeyer's role in this market and in trading some of these various products, what is it, right? Like, let's maybe look at futures and options first. How do you engage and make markets in that corner of crypto? Well, we're market makers, and that is a full-time operation. We, we deal in the spot, and then we hedge in the derivatives. And I like to say it's a little bit like uh, merchandising grain the way a grain elevator does. If, if somebody comes to us, a counterparty, and sells us coins, a miner, we buy the coins in the spot market and then sell the future or some other derivative against it to hedge it, just like a grain elevator would. And then we'll find another commercial user like an ATM machine. And of course, in the United States, we have to be careful about KYC, AML, make sure we're dealing with participants who are who they say they are and that they're reputable. But we will then sell, for instance, the Bitcoin to another commercial operator and and lift the, the derivative to take off the basis. And so that basis moves around. And so we trade the inventory some spot against the derivative. And then we make markets in the spot and um, on the exchanges and at various venues, we participate in market making programs where we'll stream prices into market making programs. And so we trade the we trade the basis, we participate in market making programs, and then we make markets to counterparties in the spot. And the counterparties are generally three categories, commercial users, like I described trading companies and hedge funds, which seems to be, uh, the hedge fund area seems to be growing as more and more people are uh, accepting the idea that these are legitimate asset classes, um, that these are assets that are trustworthy to be dealt in uh, for their client money. And then lastly, uh, what I call distribution people. They, they have lots of users on uh, mobile devices where their brand faces the end user, for instance, on a mobile device, and they connect that through our API, Fix or REST API, and stream us orders on the spot, and we settle with them. 
And so those are the three kinds of uh, participants that we like to make markets to on, on a spot basis. Interesting. And have you seen an increase in inbounds or calls from the traditional hedge fund world? We saw news earlier this year about Paul Tudor Jones getting into the market and allocating towards CME futures. Um, I think it's speculator. It's been reported that they did that vis-a-vis a large market making firm. I think it was Galaxy, or at least that's the rumor that it was Galaxy. It's funny. The reason why I thought about it was because there's a new spoof Paul Truder Jones crypto account. I think that's the telltale sign of of making it is when people start making fake accounts of you and they they catch on. This one has like thousands of followers. But anyway, the Paul Tudor Jones event, if you want to call it that, has seemed to subsided. But there's still that lingering question of are large hedge funds like Paul Tudor Jones's fund, you know, continuing to seep into crypto? Are you seeing that in your position as a market maker? Are they looking to maybe get into futures because it's it's seemingly more regulated, right? CME Bitcoin futures might be, and, and maybe you could talk to this, easier for them to sort of like put a position on versus spot because they have more experience dealing with a CME versus a Coinbase? Yes, is the answer to your question. And I, I think you're exactly right. Paul, and Paul Jones is a very thoughtful person. The paper that uh, he put together with his chief economist um, slipped out some, and uh, I was lucky enough to, to see it. And um, he very thoughtfully made the case for why he should have his investors in uh, Bitcoin. and. I don't know who he uses, but I, I have to assume that a huge global bank, fill in the blank of whoever that would be, is a place where he and the operational people at Tudor um, feel very comfortable and safe uh, having exposure to the products that are in the traditional rails, as they're called, right? And so he would go to, again, a global bank name and get his exposure for his fund and his investors at CME where it's fully baked and very transparent, right? The FCMs today after uh, the financial crisis, the, the amount of money that they have in the customer segregated funds account is uh, looked at every, monitored every day in the, in the bank accounts. The regulators can see how much they're reporting that they have, and they can see if the money's there. There's a lot of transparency to the rules that's been tested in bankruptcy court. There's lots of safety and soundness to the system for somebody to go and get exposure to, for instance, Bitcoin that gives confidence to the all the operational people. I would guess that the operational people at Tudor or any other big fund are not quite ready to have their own wallets. These are still immature, young products. When we had our little fund, we created a commodity pool um, that was a good little product. And I thought that the mantle of having it be a commodity pool would, would give some credibility to the product, would allow us to compete against some of the other fund products. We created an index of the top market cap coins listed on coinmarketcap.com, and there's different methodologies for calculating the market cap of these coins. But on coinmarketcap.com, the top 1% of the coins are coins that had at least 1% of the market cap, and we adjusted it once a month, and the index went from about, well, the methodology went back to 2013. Bitcoin was 100% and went down to I don't know, about 50% in, uh, at the beginning of 2018. And then it was back up to about 70%. We closed the fund. I just felt holding coins and charging people 2% a year wasn't true really to the technology. People can hold their own coins in their own wallets. And we weren't good at marketing. And there's some firms out there that have very good products and they're very good at marketing and um, people are comfortable with them. And, and so we closed our fund down when I got out of all of the traditional stuff point of this story is that I was meeting with an investor and he said, Chris, I like your fund. It looks like a good product. I'll put some money in it and I don't even mind losing some money, but I just don't want you to lose the money. And so I said, well, 
I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I don't lose the money either. But people are still afraid of digital wallets. They're still afraid of handling digital assets themselves. And for understandable reasons, and I'm of the opinion that the custodians and uh, prime brokers are the people that are currently in a very good position to accommodate the people that and pools of capital that are going to be coming to the marketplace who want to trust traditional rails and a traditional trusted third party place to hold their assets where they feel safe and they're not going to lose the money. And so I would think that these funds, um, and when you've got a fiduciary responsibility to protect the money, are going to use traditional rails. That's why we're the belief in our shop that the the people that did really well, aside from the people that got in 10 years ago and bought Bitcoin for pennies, and the people that were really in early and made large amounts of money because they saw it early, after that, the next wave was these uh, exchanges. And the exchanges did very well. It was mostly retail, prop trading firms, and some family offices. And I maintain that the reason for that was it was their own money. And if they got into something like Bitcoin at one of these places, one of the exchanges, and they lost uh, their money because something happened to Bitcoin, it was their own money. I mean, ouch. But so what? I can still sleep at night. I lost my own money. It's a different thing when you've got investors' money. And that, of course, is why I think the Paul Tudor Jones thing was of such notoriety because he was going to commit his customer, his investors' money in it. And he doesn't, he's a thought, very thoughtful person. And he and Mike Novogratz have been, have been friends, I think, for a long time. And so Galaxy is publicly traded. So it'd be a natural place that, that they would, Tudor would go if they wanted a market maker. But the um, trusted rails of CME is a very trusted, fully baked, dependable way for somebody who has fiduciary responsibility to get exposure to Bitcoin. It's interesting. You kind of answered one of the questions I was going to ask you, which is tied to this dichotomy that you're referring to. Trading firms, proprietary trading firms being an early entrant to this market. And then probably because of the fact that they're not necessarily dealing with outside capital. And that's probably why we have funds maybe sitting on the sidelines more so. But when you when you sort of look back and think about the and I remember writing about this in 2017, and, and I wasn't the only one. Tons of people were about all of the Chicago shops getting into this market. Um, what does the dynamic look like now relative to maybe three years ago? Well, I, um, I talk to people who will call and say, so I'm in this thing now and I can see why you like it. Let me ask you about this, this, and this. And, and oftentimes it's some really innovative couple of times that that's happened, really innovative person I've known around the Chicago trading community, and they're, they've already caught up with me and passed me by, and I learned something from them. I think the, the Chicago trading community, of course, aside from um, some just superstars that are, have been on it kind of from an early, uh, you know, for a few years, a lot of the, the traders are coming around to it because there's opportunity in it and it's dynamic. And again, the DeFi space is is wide open and people have to be careful. And if they have to go offshore because there are certain uh, exchanges that they can't access from the United States, then they got to figure out a way to do that. But the Chicago trading community has been pretty innovative in figuring out things like that and trying to do it according to the to the rules and laws and regulations. And, and they're used to that dealing with exchanges. And so uh, I don't have any data or information, but just the people that I talk to and run into, there's a lot of people that are trying various aspects of trading crypto in various ways and particularly in this DeFi space. Have you guys started looking at DeFi and, and how do you as a you know firm here in the United States maybe engage with with the opportunities that are that are in that in that market and are often talked about you see these traders hunting yield and going from token to token to capitalize on that is that something that you guys have looked at we are looking at it and 
in a tiny way, uh, dabbling in it some in, in our personal accounts, and we'll talk about it. And, and it's so new and so fast and so dynamic. I'm a real baby boomer, not just a neo baby boomer. And so <laughs> I, uh, of course, I'm a little slower moving. And I love talking to the younger people that, that we have working for us. And they are digitally native and very capable of, of analyzing these things quickly. There's still certainly risks in it. And the explosion of it, I think, all, has all of us just a little skeptical that um, there isn't some over-leveraging and some machines that, that over-leverage it. it. It gets to be, there's certain uh, venues that look uh, uh, like that they get over-leveraged quickly by the machines. And then you, you get a crash of a coin if there's some bug in the system because the, it got released last night. And they run the coin up and then run it back down. Again, you have a lot of uh, retail people that are coding and good at setting bots to search for yield farming. And so it's certainly the Wild West in all of this DeFi space. Having said that, as I said earlier, there, there are going to be business models that we haven't even dreamed of. And the, the capabilities and possibilities of having a decentralized protocol that is uh, transparent with regards to the code and, and the information of what is it that's, that's going on, the, the capabilities of that is, is um, kind of hard to even imagine where it is all going to go. And so we're just, the answer to your question is we're just dabbling in it, but I think it's, it does have tremendous possibilities. It also has a couple of question marks that, you know, it doesn't typically have KYC AML. And I think there's some fear by, justifiably so, by certain institutions about participating. And so people are um, all over and uh, keeping an eye on it, but it's dynamic. Yeah. And to your point, it's almost a wild west within a Wild West, but it's captured a lot of the attention. Um, and yeah, you're, you're probably right. I think it might be more of a retail dynamic, but when volatility is low and a lot of the attention was in DeFi, one question I had for, for trading firms in this space was where did you sort of go or where do you go when volatility is low and maybe there's not too much, you know, money to be made, um, in the more larger cap tokens, how do you navigate that? The DeFi space to me feels a little bit like Uber and Lyft when they were first used to call a taxi. It was like, okay, I mean, that's new that I can use it to call a taxi, but is that what the excitement's really about? And, um, and so then you go, then for me at least, um, it, it was suddenly like, okay, I can just call somebody in their own car and they're going to come pick me up in their own car and take me someplace. And they don't have insurance. They don't have a license. They don't have any of that. They're going to take me in their own car down to wherever in Chicago at the Board of Trade building. And um, I settle up on that app. Is that really, are the, are the authorities really going to let that happen? Is that really going to be? And that sort of feels to me a little bit analogous to where the DeFi space is. I mean, people are going in and, and borrowing one currency and lending one currency and getting some return, particularly in the zero global interest rate market that's so low, and they can farm some yield and pull out one coin and leverage it up a little bit. And again, it sometimes feels a little Ponzi scheme-ish like right now. But the possibility of, of tokens being assets that, that uh, you can take securities or any sort of uh, asset that's out there. There's, you see people starting to tokenize themselves or tokenize some service or tokenize files. They tokenize all kinds of different things. And for the global investor world from little to big to be able to get access to those assets in a decentralized way that isn't controlled by some party that has its own interests, holds the possibility of opening up for investors 
things that they've never had access to before. And the same thing with people looking for capital. So you have this chance that you totally revolutionize the way capital is gathered and organizations are formed, right? It, 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 you still have the service that's provided by the by the organization, but it's, it's now a, a, a protocol. So it can gather capital on a global scale and create a service on a global scale that um, people can participate open source. And so I'm of the belief that there are these models that are coming and then to be able to price it with oracles uh, via the nodes. And so you can get integrity of pricing. And so we're dabbling a little bit with trying to figure out you know, how to do that on a comparative basis. Again, from the Chicago sort of school of you make a market, you get hit on a price and then you lay it off somewhere. Um, that's what we're trying to look at. And I think there are others in Chicago doing the same thing. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow the block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. When you look back on your career, which is storied, and maybe you can share some old war stories later, is there anything that comes to mind that kind of resembles the Ponzi scheme-ish uh, nature of what we're seeing in DeFi or this sort of fast money environment? Well, the typical curve is that you get a lot of people that rush into a new technology and you get a euphoria in a short period of time. And then you get a crash, uh, an 80% crash of the value of whatever it is. And then a long, slow increase in the value of whatever it is over time. And, you know, the, the uh, NASDAQ market in the late 90s was certainly that way. And so in 2000, at March of 2000, it hit a peak and then it, you know, crashed. I guess it's the right word for it. It sold off 80%. And then it took whatever, 15, 17, 20 years for it to come all the way back and go a lot and then go twice as high. And so you see, that would be the one that I would say is, is, and that's exactly what it looks like happened in the price of Bitcoin after uh, 2017 that the people around have been in it called the crypto winner. You had this huge euphoric run up where everybody was getting into it. And at the end of uh, 2017, and some people, um, and maybe correctly so, pointed out that that's right about when um, CME launched its futures and CBO at the time. But. Uh, it allowed people to uh, short, you know, the price. And so then people can come in because it was overdone and short the whole thing. So you get capital coming on the other side and it all shakes it all out. The weak holders get an 80% crash. And now we're getting this looks like a, a long controlled uh, appreciation of the price. Now, things seem to be in crypto world a little bit accelerated. Um, you know, it's it, the technologies allow for, um, some of these developments to happen on a, what seems like a faster and faster pace as I, as I watch. You know, things used to be slower moving. It seems like they get faster and faster. When you look out into the market and, and you know, we're seeing prices run back up, we're seeing this exuberance in DeFi, do you get the sense that maybe we're heading into a bull market or is that the sense maybe you get from the way in which your counterparties are interacting with the market, what's the sense you have? Well, it, the, the DeFi euphoria um, is, is hard to predict because it, is it, it feels euphoric at times, but I don't think we've had a big sort of blow off top yet. And it could go a long way yet. But um, I think that it is, it certainly feels like it's on this euphoric rise and that's going to continue for some period of time 
until it exhausts itself and it there's a crash of it and then a long slow uh, appreciation over time. That that would be my guess, and it feels like it's still euphoric and still a ways to go. With regards to Bitcoin, as I say, I, the Paul Jones piece was very thoughtful, and um, I don't think the central banks are quite ready to acquire uh, Bitcoin like they are comfortable holding gold. But the, the argument is the same, I think, in many ways for both, because as your recent session had, you know, this issue of these uh, central banks printing massive amounts of fiat for, for good reasons is going to contribute to certain investors wanting to have assets that are not directly linked with the fiat, right? And so it feels like short-term in particular, you've got this uh, in the derivatives globally in Bitcoin and Ethereum, you've got this growing open interest in the uh, derivatives with the price holding up near its highs, not real volatile and usually a technical signal. And you've got growing open interest with markets sitting up near their highs and not retreating. It's usually a bullish signal what that's worth. Yeah. And a lot of the guys that are trading CME are going to be traditional folks. And so when you see that open interest, we're at over 800 million marching steady towards a billion. That's definitely a great indication of, you know, the sentiment underpinning the market. I agree with you. And Ethereum seems to be the same way. I, I'm, I'm almost a little surprised, although I'm sure it's for good reason. Um, that, they, that the exchanges, some of the U.S. exchanges haven't come out with an Ethereum uh, future yet, a futures, Ethereum futures and options. This, there's Ethereum 2.0 headed our way from what I read. And um, the possibilities and capabilities of the Ethereum blockchain are going to be better and better. It, it, it seems like the Ethereum blockchain seems to be uh, burdened with, with the activity and, and the gas fees, the, the price the people pay to uh, transact on the on the blockchain are very high and that the 2.0 is going to relieve a lot of that. So Ethereum certainly seems to, to be an asset that also should have some attention that, that's paid. I'm Like I said, I'm surprised that there aren't some uh, U.S. futures on it yet. Yeah, I think people have aspirations to do it, but they kind of want to just get their minds around Bitcoin. At least that's the approach that CME has taken. Let's figure this market out first before venturing out. Um, does the lack of Ethereum futures make your job more difficult in terms of acting as a market maker? Um, I wouldn't say that it makes it more difficult, but we just go elsewhere to play. Um, and we like to play at um, the U.S. exchanges because we have, you know, connectivity and money with FCM and all of that. And so we definitely play if they opened it up. And so we, I think it's a it's a possibility for them. But as I say, I, I'm sure there's good reasons, CFTC approval, whatever all those reasons are. I'm sure there's good reasons. But it, we play if they listen to them. And when you play like in other markets, you know, offshore markets, what's it like engaging with some of those exchanges? I'm sure they come with their own difficulties. Maybe they're not structured the same. We kind of talked about it at the beginning, how there's kind of like this chasm betwixt the twain. What does that look like from a, you know, operational perspective? Well, um, it's, it's operationally a challenge. The paradigm of the SCM is different in this crypto land because we don't have somebody in between a FCM or, or prime broker that uh, sits in between where we can put money in an SCM and trade at a number of different exchanges all with the same pot of money. Um, we've got assets, different exchanges, and of course we have a few foreign subsidiaries. And so we have to, the accounting of all of that and trying to keep track of the house's position is what we spent a lot of money trying to build an infrastructure that allows us to do that. So we know what trades we've made and where we've made them and what the, what the firm's position is. And it's, uh, it's different and it's a challenge. These exchanges are not as transparent as the publicly held U.S. exchanges. And so there is a bit of a trust issue that I don't think has completely played itself out. And um, I don't mean 
to point at any one exchange over there. They're, these exchanges have been very innovative and there's some very good ones. But the lack of transparency will mean eventually, I think, that there'll be some, you know, there'll be some issues. And, and you can't have a new technology and something that evolves quickly and is innovative and new without issues. And, and I don't know exactly what those will be. And they have these funds that auto liquidate people. And there's an insurance fund where they socialize losses, but those haven't been uh, fully tested with heavy stress like a lot of the U.S. futures exchanges have in bankruptcies. And there's been through the years all kinds of uh, scandals through the years of various ways in the old days. There was people cheating with soybean oil, filling tankers full of water and putting oil on the top, or, you know, there was all ways of cheating. And now it's uh, hacking or something that we don't know and frauds are frauds. And I'm sure there's going to be um, some issues. We talk a lot about trying to avoid those issues, but the lack of transparency does create some anxiety. Um, but having said that, they're doing lots of business and they're big organizations now and getting bigger all the time. What additional transparency uh, would the firm benefit from? Well, that's a good question. Um, and, and a good question because I don't know the answer and I, I haven't directly um, asked for information from some of these exchanges that I that they haven't provided. And so mm-hmm. uh, I, I would, if I had to, to, I'm suspicious that there are certain people that, know which way the public leans. And what gives me that suspicion is we get these downdrafts of liquidations where the retail market will get liquidated quickly and then the market will come back. And just in my experience, um, if somebody knows what the open interest is and knows which way the retail uh, latecomers are leaning, they will try to push a market in that direction to try to create, to hit stops, right? Um, create liquidations. In the old days, we called it, you know, going hunting for stops. That somebody would try to do that. And I have no information. I don't know that. I, I, um, people could say, oh, Chris, you're a conspiracy theorist. But I just suspect in watching the market action that there's some of that that goes on. But I, I don't I don't know that, so, and I don't know even how to ask the question. Um, your question is, what would I ask them? And I'm not even sure how I would ask them. Is anybody getting to see the open interest? Yeah, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to make them uncomfortable, right? <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know, come off uh, come off too aggressive or something. Um, ha- having but- said that, though, you know, a lot of the information about how much the liquidations are is available on. Skew and a number of these other websites that um, some of the information is is more transparent than the traditional market. Yeah, I've, uh, people have said that before. Like there are some interesting differences where crypto is actually more transparent, um, despite some opaque corners of the market, like the repo market you talked about, and you know we kind of have a burgeoning rates market, and a lot of people don't even know. Um, that that's sort of all going on in the background and, and how maybe some of these interest rates are calculated and, and who's sort of driving those markets. Um, but there are other instances that are, there are other examples that are more transparent in this market. We've covered some, some really good ground over the course of this conversation. It's been super interesting for me just as a person who covers a lot of the trading firms and their activity I guess looking forward a bit into the end of the year, like what are you expecting? How can you build on some of the momentum you've built on and grow the business further? Well, I um, like I say, we're just a little startup and not making money in some sort of big way. I am in it because I believe the markets are going to grow. I think the volume will grow, the open interest will grow, the participation will grow. And so then for a market making firm like us, there's, there's going to be more opportunity, I think, because those volumes are going to grow as a, as a whole. And, and we will participate 
uh, we intend to participate as that happens. And so that's one of the main reasons we're in it. And as a team, we talk about that and our commitment to it. And so I think the the activity is going to continue to grow. Where the challenges are, are, are I believe, with the public policy issues, particularly with regards to central bank digital currencies. Those are challenges that the central banks are going to face, and there's opportunities in those challenges. And then how do these stable coins or central bank digital currencies impact markets and the interest rates? And I think that those policymakers have challenges there. And um, the, the the technologies move so fast, like we were talking about, and we have a, a governmental system that's designed to not move as fast as innovation. We want it that way. We don't want government hopping from here to there. But the, that means that government's going to move slower, and they, they face these challenges of a very dynamic technology frontier that's global. And, um, and so, therefore, I think there's challenges on the regulatory front. The um, CFTC has, now I'm a little partial because they're the regulator for our industry and I'm partial to them because I think they've been uh, innovative compared to other regulators and with some criticism, they face some criticism for being that way, but they've been open-minded and they have said recently they, they, they want to structure with other uh, regulatory agencies in Washington, a, a five-year plan to try to come up with uh, frameworks uh, that are going to accommodate the activity. And I, it, it's going to be a challenge to do that, but I think they're going to all need to be really focused on it. And there's certainly people that are, because these technologies are coming fast and they are global and they are dynamic and they are happening. It's interesting. I, I read your letter. You, you wrote something, um, and I think it was it was sent to the. It was a comment letter. I'm pretty sure it might have been a while ago where you advocated for the CFTC sort of having full ownership over the digital asset space from a regulatory perspective, um, which is something uh, a few other you know industry executives and and companies have advocated for as well. I think Arasex in Chicago has also made that case. And it kind of makes sense when you think about the complexity of navigating all these various different agencies, um, unlike equities or futures, you know, Bitcoin can kind of fit in many different buckets or cryptocurrencies can fit into many different buckets. This goes back to your nomenclature, you know, question, which is since they represent so many things, different agencies, you know, can have ownership over them or claim a stake to them so to speak. Um, but it's, it's an interesting topic. And I think something that hasn't been talked about in a while with, with all this mania um, that's been ongoing. But I guess my sort of my last question, like just thinking about like the traditional world, like moving from, you know, the pit open outcry to more electronic trading, is this like the next step? And, you know, you, you talk about regulations maybe being a an impediment what what are some other impediments aside from some of these more operational things we've talked about we'll see a couple of questions there that when you when, when we i should say see somebody like ryan brooks at uh as the acting chairman of occ get approved the um ability for banks to be able to hold crypto assets um there is an example of somebody who saw this market at uh, Coinbase and is helping the, the um, traditional world to see how big and fast moving this is. And that's a development that I think is a big development and one that more and more people will start to follow, I believe. And um, my advocacy of the CFTC, of course, was anything that's not a security under the CFTC under the Commodity Exchange Act, what is a commodity is very broadly defined. And basically, it's anything that's not a security, which, of course, falls under the SEC. And so I, I just am of the belief that uh, from a regulatory perspective, that there's opportunity there for the CFTC because everything else could be a 
a digital asset that could be defined as a commodity and could fall under the CFTC laws. But it, um, that's a suggestion as an opportunity. But the answer to your question of me sort of standing on the street corner and watching what's going by, uh, the answer is yes. I, I started down there on the trading floor and the trading floor had a in the 70s had a tremendous energy to it. There was inflation and it had this energy that you could just kind of sense was really growing and developing fast. And it was a really exciting place to be. And it was the financial futures, thanks to uh, many of the tremendous innovators that came before me of the Chicago exchanges, the financial futures were young and nascent, just getting going, and, and they, they, they became tremendous markets over the next 10 to 20 years. And then in the early 90s, it was electronic trading. And I witnessed my first electronic trade up in our office at night in the off hours. And it was like, oh, my goodness, uh, that's, that's new and different. And it, uh, you could tell that the technology was going to change things. And over the course of the 90s and early 2000s, it, it very dynamically, I've used that word a lot um, today, but the, the market advanced very quickly, rapidly, and brought tremendous efficiencies, like the Industrial Revolution brought to making cloth, right? It, it just, you had huge technology advancements that allowed for volumes to just explode. Of course, the price of per transaction came way down. And that's what this looks like. It These blockchain technologies allow for me to transact with somebody on a peer-to-peer, wallet-to-wallet basis without uh, third parties. And, and these blockchain technologies therefore bring capabilities for people to innovate in ways we haven't ever seen. And so this DeFi space allows, as I said, for business models that we haven't seen. So it's a tremendously dynamic area and Every day, somebody will say, oh, my gosh, such and such and such happened today. And I'm like, I've never heard of that in my life, ever. And today, it's the biggest, hottest thing uh, going. So the space is dynamic. And in that sense, it's fun to be a part of it. It definitely is. It's definitely fun from our perspective. I bet. And it, it makes these conversations all the more fun. Chris, it was so great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Hope to hear from you soon. I, Frank, I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk to you. All the best. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. I'd like to give our sponsor, Bitstamp, a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.